Um, and then I'll pick up on this series that we're doing. Uh, the series is on eschatology, the doctrine of last things. We've got a lot we really need to cover as we go into uh, the signs of the return of the Lord and all that's going on. But we're presently really talking about uh, the good news, the gospel. Um, we've looked at that for several weeks now. Uh, the good news that announces peace, that announces good things of joy, that announces Yeshua or salvation, and the reign of the God of Israel over the whole earth. And the basis of that gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus as expressed in Isaiah 52 where it talks about the good news and Isaiah 53 where it talks about the death and resurrection of Jesus. But it also includes an understanding of what we're really celebrating this week which is the ascension into heaven where Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for him to come back and establish the kingdom. That time Jesus himself doesn't know, the angels of heaven don't know, only the Father. In the meantime, the gospel is to go forth throughout all of the earth, the good news to the Jew first, and also to those who are from the nations. And so in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, the Apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for salvation, to everyone who fades or trusts or believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's a key phrase. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, my righteous one shall live by faith. So, we have been looking at this, and Paul let us know that there are reasons why the vast majority of Jews in his day did not believe. Uh, now, some miss this righteousness of faith, this righteousness of God, which Paul says is expressed in the Torah, particularly through Abraham. And they're trying to establish their own righteousness by works of the law. And that's not possible. So Paul says that some people have missed this because they don't really understand the righteousness of faith. That righteousness of faith be, obeys commandments out of gratitude for the grace that has come to, to us. Some, he says, are not, like, are not really of Israel in that they, like Esau, did not receive mercy. And he mentions that also in Romans 9. Still others, he says, stumbled at the idea of a crucified Savior as the Messiah. Because they were expecting the Messiah to reign as son of David on the throne of Jacob and bring peace and the fulfillment of all the promises of God. And Jesus really didn't appear to do that. I mean, from their perspective, he had died. These guys were saying he was alive again. But there was still Roman oppression and that. They, they simply didn't see that. So Paul argues that God has not abandoned Israel because he, Paul, and the other apostles and the first believers were actually Jews. He also claims that there was an unknown remnant within Israel that goes back to the time of Elijah, uh, and I believe even before that, who God had reserved to himself. 
In addition to that, Paul explains that a temporary hardening of Israel has occurred to allow the Gentiles to come to faith. And when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, then all all Israel would be saved, and that would be life from the dead. That phrasing appears to indicate a period in the future at the time of the restoration or the day of the Lord, which is the subject of this series. So I'll be talking more about this activity of God working within Israel, even to some extent independent of the gospel uh, later in the series. Now last week, I explained that as Judaism and Christianity began to separate, really what separated was the Jewish believers in Yeshua and the Gentile believers in Yeshua, and also there was a split that would happen within the Jews who didn't believe in Yeshua and the Jews who did, leaving the Jews who believed in Yeshua kind of out of both groups in some sense. What began to happen was, in Christianity, a replacement theology and a Christian anti-Semitism that you can read about in the books that we're reading that begins to minimize access to the gospel uh, to Jews. To follow Jesus, they have to give up their identity and the covenants and the promises to the Father. And they have to understand that all that's now been transferred to the church. That is not good news to faithful Jews who waited for the promises to be completed. In addition, over time, the gospel begins to be presented to different types of Gentiles who had no notion or understanding of Jews and Judaism, so that the gospel becomes stripped of its Jewish context and presented in a simpler form, kind of like we do with the four spiritual laws. Even more than that, Jews and Judaism, in that form of the gospel, are seen as the antithesis of the gospel, not as its first recipients. So, the other thing that needs to be talked about, and I'm going to do that today, is that Judaism also begins to change during during those two millennia since the resurrection. And it's to that that I'm turning this week. So, we need to understand that Judaism at the time of the Second Temple, in the days of Jesus, was divided into various groups. There were zealots, they they were Torah observant nationalists who wanted to battle Rome and declare their independence. There were Pharisees who believed that there was a uh, uh, need to observe uh, the commandments and the traditions of the fathers. They believed in resurrection. They hoped for the Messiah. There were uh, the Sadducees, the more priestly group that didn't accept the prophets, only the Torah. They cared about the temple, and they didn't believe in resurrection or angels, so they were not going to rock the boat with Rome. There were another group of priests called the Essenes that go back to the uh, Hasmoneans and and the uh, group from the time of the uh, uh, Hanukkah uh, events, and they thought that the temple was corrupt and the high priest was corrupt, and they were waiting for the Messiah to come, and they were waiting, uh, giving up everything for that purpose. So there were all kinds of groups. There were Judaisms of 
various uh, ilk around in that time. And within that group begins to be these uh, Jews who are called Nazarene, or followers of Yeshua, or followers of the Nazarene. And they are also within the temple system and within this framework. Now, that is only within those Jews who are in the land. There's an enormous number of Jews who are in the diaspora. First scattered by the Assyrians, then taken into captivity by the Babylonians, and some of them had now returned into the promised land and gone through the control of the Greeks, the Seleucids, and now the Romans. So now following the first century, all the children of Israel are going to be scattered to the uttermost parts of the earth because some were already scattered and those who were in the land will now be scattered again because of the destruction of the temple and because of the destruction of uh, Jerusalem and ultimately because of the Bar Kokhba revolt. Now a group of rabbis are going to meet in the Galilee area and begin to write down the oral traditions and arguments that had been central to that Pharisaic understanding of the Bible and their way of life. They also would bring in some of the Sadducee traditions and the uh, Essene traditions and the whatever they could trying to maintain Judaism without a temple. Now this had already begun in the diaspora and would now continue as they had returned in the land and then were removed from the land. The result of that was what we call the Mishnah, a study book of the Torah from within the oral traditions that was produced. And over time, added to that, were commentaries and other discussions called the Gemara, so that we end up with what is called the Talmud. Now really there's a Babylonian Talmud and a Jerusalem Talmud. Uh, I don't want to get into that now. But what we begin to get is a codified, traditional Judaism that go with content that goes all the way back to Moses and all the way up to the 5th century of the Common Era or after the uh, time of Jesus. Judaism then is held together for these 2,000 years by that Hebrew Bible and these books in the Talmud and by the Spirit of God who promised to be with them in the diaspora until God gathered them back into the kingdom. And I really wanted to grab and jump in that, but if I extend this longer, you guys will turn on me. So I want you to know that Ezekiel saw the Spirit of God leaving the temple and going out, and he said, God, are you abandoning Israel? And he said, no, I'm going into exile with them. So just as God, by His Spirit, dwelt with Israel in the wilderness, even though they weren't fully obedient, and maintained the remnant and brought them into the land, so God is with Israel in the diaspora until the time when He regathers them. That's really important. That's part of what Paul's talking about, of this remnant that God has reserved for Himself. So, what we begin to see then is... Uh, that they are going to study Torah in all of this context and act according to that teaching. That becomes part of Jewish identity. 
and the content from the second temple sects are included in that content, though the primary content is from the Pharisees. And in the same way that there were sects uh, during the second temple and competing ideas about what a Jew was and what they were supposed to do during the temple period, Judaism was not monolithic then and it is not monolithic now. And we can actually trace some of the variants within Judaism now. And if we're going to bring the gospel to the Jews now, we have to understand them as they are now. We're not bringing the gospel to zealots. We're not bringing the gospel to uh, Pharisees. We're not bringing the gospel to Sadducees. We're not bringing the gospel to the uh, Essenes. We're bringing the gospel to Jews who have gone through this process with the Spirit of God for 2,000 years, somewhat hardened, somewhat unable to see the gospel for the sake of us Gentiles being allowed to come to the knowledge of the gospel. So what is the differences in Jews today? Well, let me talk about that. First of all, there is a cultural divide that took place in Judaism. That division is very similar to the division that took place in Orthodox Christianity uh, in the uh, Middle Ages up to about uh, 1054, or when the Eastern Church and the Western Church split. Those splits were largely upon language and cultural differences. The Eastern Orthodox Churches spoke Greek and thought in that kind of a worldview. The Western churches spoke Latin. And what happened is the church divided somewhat over these cultural and linguistic differences. Well, in the same way, the scattered Jews began to divide culturally and linguistically into what are called Sephardic Jews and Ashkenazi Jews. Now, the Sephardic Jews were related to the Mediterranean area. They spoke Hebrew and mixed it with Latin, and that version of language dialect for them was called Ladino, and they had very different uh, texture and cultural differences in terms, they didn't use an ark, they had a, a container for their Torah scrolls that they still do today. Their synagogues had sand on the floor to remind them of the wilderness. There are actually cultural and religious differences in the Sephardic Jews. The other group, the Ashkenazi Jews, were European, and they mixed Hebrew with German to, ford, to form the language Yiddish. And they had distinct cultural differences as well in terms of dress and food and liturgy. So there is a difference between Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jews. There are also some differences in Yemenite Jews and other smaller groups. So there are cultural variants within Judaism. Secondly, there are denominational differences within Jews today. As the modern era moved forward and Europe went into modernity, Judaism uh, that had been traditional, not orthodox, traditional, coming out of this Talmudic system and varying somewhat from culture to culture and language to language, what began to happen is traditional Jews in Germany began to be uh, affected by modernity and by the Enlightenment and other things, just like 
happened in Christianity, and they believed they needed to have a modern faith. So they rethought many of the laws and the traditional practices, and they created a liberal form of Judaism that is known as Reform Judaism. Not Reformed. Reformed is the Christian version. There was the Reform in Judaism as well, but they call it simply Reform. Reformed Jews then were much more liberal, much more modern, and dropped an enormous amount of the belief and the practice of traditional Judaism. Now, there was a reaction to that. The reaction was what we call Orthodox Judaism. Orthodox Judaism is a reaction to Reform Judaism, pulling back into a strict observation of traditional Judaism, and to some extent, a rejection of modernity. I'll talk about that in a minute. There are actually two types of Orthodox, modern Orthodox, and what we call ultra-Orthodox. Okay? But I'll talk about those in a minute. The third major movement was a group that saw that the liberal Reformed Jews and the very strict Orthodox Jews were probably extremes, and they moved into a kind of middle ground, and they are called conservative Jews. So you need to understand traditional Judaism had a split into reform, a reaction into orthodoxy, and then a pull into conservative Judaism. And those are the major denominations. There are some other minor denominations, but those are the major denominational structures uh, today of Jews. Now, another thing happened as modernity came into Europe. Modernity brought this notion of secularism to both Jews and Christians. And secularism is an idea of a no-God zone. And it allowed Jews and Christians who didn't want the restrictions and entanglements of their religions to enter into the modern era as individuals. Now, some Jews wanted to keep their Jewish identity and the cultural aspects of Judaism, but they didn't really want to be religious Jews. And they were seeking a place where they could be Jews without persecution by the religious uh, part of this, and they could be protected from anti-Semitism that dominated historical and modern Europe. This was called Zionism. Zionism is not about religious Jews. Zionism is about secular Jews. The term was coined in the 1890s, and it was the idea that a Jewish nationalism a cultural nationalism was possible with a return to a land that would be the country of Israel. Now, this is a secular idea. It's not a regathering of Israel by God, but a declaration of a Jewish ethnic and cultural naturalism, a nationalism by secular Jews. And in 1897, Theodore Herzl wrote The Jewish State in which he advocated a national Israel somewhere in the world. Some people thought it could be in the promised land, but others thought it might be in Argentina, because there was a large number of Jews there. They were looking for a place somewhere in the world that could have a Jewish state. 
Now, in 1948, after the Holocaust, Europe, in some sense, wanting to get the rest of the Jews out of Europe, because there was still a great deal of anti-Semitism, uh, Herschel's dream of a Jewish state became true as the UN established the state of Israel, which was a secular state and a democracy. So it's important to understand that those early Jews who established Israel, Ben-Gurion and those people, were not religious Jews. They were secular nationalists who wanted to maintain their Jewish identity and wanted a place where Jews would be protected from the kind of anti-Semitism that had happened. But they were not thinking in terms of a restoration of the kingdom of David. However, there were Jews that were interested in that. So modernity also split Orthodox Jews into two camps. There are Orthodox Jews who embrace modernity while maintaining their strict observance. These Jews are doctors, they are uh, uh, lawyers, they are in politics, they are in education, they, they go for graduate education, and they are uh, Orthodox observant Jews. Uh, so uh, Senator Lieberman was one of these. Um, uh, uh, one of Brenna's doctors is an Orthodox uh, Jew, and she is a, uh, a specialist in medicine. They, these are Jews who fully embraced modernity, but maintained their orthodox observance of religiosity in that context. Now, there is another group of Jews, and this is the vast majority of orthodox Jews, and they are called Hasidim, or Haredi Jews, and that includes groups like Chabad, and those that you see in the black hats and the jackets with the beards and the peyes, the long curls. These groups are strict observers of Jewish tradition, but they generally reject modernity, somewhat like the Amish. They reject public education. They have their own schools. They reject much of technology. So they have cell phones, but their cell phones may not give them access to uh, the Internet or it gives them a very restricted access to the Internet. And for the most part, they have rejected Zion. They do not recognize the state of Israel as coming from God. They consider the modern state of Israel to be simply something that the secular modern world created. And while they may live there, they don't necessarily want to serve in the army. They don't want to pay taxes, but they want the state of Israel to pay for them to study Torah. They are messianic, not in the sense of believing in Yeshua, but they are waiting for the Messiah to come and rebuild Jerusalem and establish the temple and create the restored a kingdom of David as promised. And for a while, particularly among the Chabad, they thought there was one who was the Messiah, and of course he died, and while they uh, have tried to rethink some of that theology, uh, that particular group has had a lot of individuals who, who came to faith in Yeshua. Now this group is zealous for God, and for Torah, and for the coming of Messiah. 
They tend to live in communities. They keep a significant separation from outsiders. They seldom marry non-Jews, while 70% of other Jews intermarry and end up moving towards assimilation. It appears then that the future of Judaism is going to be these Hasidic Jews. The other Jewish communities are becoming smaller. They're not reproducing. They're not very uh, uh, good at bringing people into conversion. And so they are actually just kind of, uh, they're not having large families and their children are growing up assimilated. So the, what may be true in the next generation of Jews is that the central expression of religiosity of Jews will either be secular uh, as with the Israelis and these Hasidic Jews. Now, what about the gospel to the Jews? If the gospel is largely rejected by all of these Jewish groups, and that's true, because they perceive of Jesus as the Christian God, having nothing to do with them, and they view Christianity as an anti-Semitic religion that hates Jews and all things Jewish, so there's a great fear among Jews of every stripe that Christians really, if you scratch them, they are anti-Semites. And even if they support Israel and Jewish causes, they're only doing that in order to reach Jews with the gospel, which will convert them and assimilate them and make them non-Jews. We really have a struggle for that. So if the gospel is to be presented to Jews today, it has to be adapted to each of these different Jewish perspectives, as it has been adapted to Gentile perspectives, as it went from culture to culture. So for secular Jews, it will be different than for the various religious Jews. But whatever we do, it has to be seen as a Jewish message about Jewish redemption and about the regathering of Israel and the Messianic age to begin. And I believe it's got to begin with a humility by Gentile Christians who reject and repent of Christian anti-Semitism. Even if some of us individually haven't done it, we need to repent on behalf of Christianity and from forcing Jews to embrace assimilation. That's going to be a hard task as the church maintains both a structural and often a personal rejection of Jews and Judaism and has built into it this kind of replacement theology. Now, this has been both mitigated and exacerbated by the Messianic Jewish movement and by the usurpation of Jewish stuff by well-meaning but uninformed Gentiles who run the gamut from Jewish wannabes with their kippahs and their talits and their tzitzi, uh, eating uh, what they call biblical kosher, and the Jewish roots type of Gentiles who have a zeal for Jewish things, but no real concern for Jewish sensitivities. In other words, they don't really care about the Jewish people and what they think when these things are usurped from them. So Jewish evangelism is a major problem. And some people have decided that they don't need to bring the good news to the Jews because the Jews are saved a different way. They use some of these texts that we've been looking at to say, well, the Jews are saved 
under the covenant and Christians are saved under the gospel. Um, and so in some groups, uh, they simply believe that there is no need to bring the gospel to the Jew. That is not true. Paul sought to save some of the Jews. So I want you to turn to Romans chapter 11, uh, verses 11 to 15. It's very clear here that Paul says about the Jews who stumbled over that stumbling block. He says in verse 11, I say then, did they stumble so as to fall? No. May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them, that is the Jews, jealous. For if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentile, how much more will their fulfillment be? And I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, uh, inasmuch then as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. I want you to catch that. Paul's saying, look, I'm not talking to the Jews now. I'm talking to you Gentiles so that you will help me with this provocation thing. I'm speaking to you as Gentiles inasmuch then as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow Jews and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead. Now, Paul's making an argument. He's hinting at the fact that Jews need to be saved, but there is a problem with the gospel getting to them. That's why he says they are enemies for the gospel's sake, but they belong to the promises of the fathers for the election's sake. He wants to enhance the gospel to the Jews some of them, he used the word some, the idea here is that Paul knows that this hardening of Israel in part is so the Gentiles can be saved, but God is still working among the Jews until the time when all Israel will be saved. We have to talk about that later in this series. So what he says is, I want some of them, as I am, to come into full knowledge of Yeshua and the salvation of God. Because the church has to be Jews and Gentiles in one body. The biblical church is not Gentiles only. So, Gentile believers, Paul says, can make Jews jealous. Some translations say envious. That's not a good word. I'll talk more about that next week when I talk about what we're going to need to do in each of these cases. But Paul believes that we can have an effect on the saving of some Jews. That is, making them open to the gospel. Now, clearly that can't happen without the Spirit of God causing them to believe in the same way that the Spirit of God causes us to believe. So we're not looking for a formula that will trick Jews into believing. We want to pray that God will lead us to those that he is bringing into a fuller knowledge in that sense. And the question that Paul doesn't explain here in Romans 11 is how to do this. But he does give us a hint. And that's going to be the subject for next week. How do we provoke to jealousy secular Jews, Reformed Jews, Orthodox Jews, both modern and Hasidic, 
and conservative Jews? How do we, like Paul, become all things to all Jews that by all means we might reach some of them? The key here is some of them. And as we go further in the series, I'll explain more of the partial hardening and the remnant concepts related to things that have to happen to bring about the kingdom. And if all the Jews accept Jesus, that won't bring those issues. God is working out his plan and bringing forth the gospel. And we only have a partial view of that. But I'm going to talk about that. But before I do that, I want to really talk seriously with you about things we can do in our relationship to secular Jews, Reformed Jews, Orthodox Jews, Conservative Jews. Now, let me say, first of all, in order to have an effect on them, we have to be in relationship with them. We have to know them. That's not going to be easy because they don't trust us. And they think that what we're after is to bring them out of their Jewish identity and out of their Judaism. And we have to make clear that that's not what we're doing and that we are opposed to replacement theology and we are opposed to anti-Semitism to the point that we will stand with them. Only then will they trust us. And then when they see us handling things that are rightfully theirs, they will begin to spark that jealousy. And I'll talk about that more next week uh, when I uh, have the time for that. So, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your